0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. By the end of the previous episode, we were mired in the political tumult in the lowlands from the middle of the 800s to the 10 hundreds. The state of the region, that being what today would be considered as Benelux, but back then was still largely referred to as Lower Lorraine, was one of infighting and jostling between the ruling nobility, trying to attain as much power for themselves as possible. This was rather complicated, considering they were flanked not only by each other, but also on either side of Lower Lorraine were their overall suzerain rulers, those on top of the vassalage ladder, so to speak, either the King of France or the emperor in Germany. But these political wranglings were not the only matters of importance taking place in the lowlands. The majority of people were members of a peasant class living in some form of indentured servitude to feudal lords and their territorial holdings. They worked farms. But farm technology was changing, and this would cause a massive social shift that started in the 11th century. And that is what this episode is all about. welcome to the history of the netherlands where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel this is episode six plowing forward as the first millennium of the common era ticked over The different territorial fiefdoms of which the lowlands consisted were solidifying themselves into what would become recognizable regions going forward. What emerged after all of the infighting was a patchwork of various counties, duchies, principalities, and bishoprics. In the very north of the lowlands, by the sea, and stretching all the way up to Denmark, there was Friesland. This was the area least subjected to influence by the feudal system, and still maintained reflections of their pre-Charlemagne past. Rather than living under the rule of a feudal count, they were governed more by old Germanic customs. An oligarchy of families would enforce the Ludting, which was a regular meeting of freemen to discuss and resolve issues. From the 10 hundreds, this became an annual meeting of district representatives across Friesland, who would meet under a certain tree in Uppstahl. This became known as the opstal Boom. Living mainly in villages, the leaders of villages in Friesland would organize the people into civil defense against military incursions of their territory. They would also organize civil defense against their ever-constant and greatest enemy, the Rising Tide. Around the year 1000, what we today know as Holland was still really known as West Friesland. Its first counts mainly called Dirk, had, mainly through warfare, fortified their borders. Although, not there yet, they were on their way to entering the same league as the more powerful fiefdoms to the south, and being able to challenge the superiority of the greatest power in this region, north of the Rhine. This was the Bishop of Utrecht, who controlled an area around the city of Utrecht, but also on the other side of the silted floodplains to the east of Holland, there was an area known as the Oversticht, Stuck between these two domains of the ecclesiastical princes that were the Utrecht bishops was the smaller county of Gelders, which would become increasingly important as well. Although the north and eastern domains in the Lowlands, over whom the Holy Roman Emperor officially held suzerainty, were gradually growing in independence and power, they had not yet matched the levels of influence and power which had been acquired by the southern domains during the course of all that internecine warfare and feudal disputes that we covered in the previous episode. These were namely the Duchies of Brabant and Limburg, the Counties of Flanders, which also ruled parts of Zeeland and Alost, as well as the Counties of Lufayne, Hanaud, Namur, Lone and Luxembourg. The powerful bishop in the south was that of Liege, while those in Cambrai and Tournai in the far south also liked to wave around their um, seeming senses of self-admiration where and when they could. Speaking of ecclesiastical power, we mustn't ever forget the church. We mentioned previously about how the Cluniac reforms began changing the landscape of the church's role in Western Europe from the late 900s. Benedictine monasteries, abbeys, convents, churches, and hermitages had been springing up all around the place. Various orders, such as the Cistercians, began to emerge and to have a bigger impact on this social influence. These were communities of frugal and pious monks and nuns. By the late 11th century, the general idealism of what piety looked like had begun to change, A stricter sense of observance came to dominate the expected behavior of the clergy, or at least of the lower clergy. Monks and priests and nuns in this time came to practice celibacy and no longer married. Wandering preachers abounded, and around them, spiritual centers were built. Perhaps the most famous of these in the lowlands is the Benedictine Monastery at Aflichem, which was started by six lay monks in 1062. They had become followers of one such wanderer and it is from this abbey that such great beer continues to flow to this day. Importantly, as they had done in the 500s, abbeys around Europe were more important in nurturing important cultural heritage. Not only were manuscripts and texts produced and maintained in them, but centres of learning and education grew out of them. As we saw in the previous episode, the near constant warfare of the 900s due to the collapse of Charlemagne's empire, plus the ravaging of Vikings, had led to a weakening of centralized authority. This decentralization of power left members of the lower nobility, barons and knights, in control of their own small fiefdoms and able to exploit the common class. Fortifications such as castles had been built as defensive measures and ranks of lower nobility were put in charge of these by the upper liege lords. These men were known as Castellans, given power over small chunks of territory, as well as an awesome piece of machinery, a castle. These Castellans then almost universally ruled with an absolutism in their local area, and in the process, often built abusive relationships with the local populations over whom they ruled, exploiting them for servitude, their goods, and their taxes. They could, without remonstrance, be pretty lax in their enforcement of the king's law, if it benefited them to be so. Banditry, highway robbery, murder, and theft might abound if it was allowed to do so on orders of the Castellans. Basically, there was little to no recourse of justice for the common folk. By the 1020s, this non-Christian behavior of the Castellans came to clash with the rising confidence and social influence of this kind of new clergy given their ever more entrenched high moral standing across all classes of society. A movement to establish what became known as the Peace and Truce of God sprung up, mainly in Flanders. This led to a religious revival, with many ordinary people participating in the erecting of new churches and processions in which people, regardless of their rank, would walk barefoot behind images of the Virgin Mary. The clergy also used their presence as well as anything at their disposal, like relics and Bibles, to try and end disputes, even between armies. Apparently, upon just the sight of a priest clutching a Bible, people would suddenly forget what they were fighting about and lay down their arms. This clergy also tried to hold the abusive lower nobility, such as these Castellans, to account for their exploitations of the people. It was this first real flexing of its muscles in Western Europe that started to establish the church as a power base that would gradually break away from the direct influence of the upper nobility. For instance, the emperor in Germany had been up into the 10th century using ecclesiastical appointments to put his vassals in charge of bishoprics like Cologne and Liège so as to ever fortify his power. By the middle 10 hundreds, however, the clergy including the most influential in Italy, those mainly from whom the popes derived, began loudly looking at this as undue German influence in church affairs. It would not be long before this would change and bishops would become, by order of papal decree, appointed from amidst the ecclesiastical community and not by the emperor or any king. So what was occurring in the middle 10 hundreds in Central Europe was the emergence of a distinction between the power bases of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. Politically speaking, then, that is largely the state of things in the lowlands in the ten hundreds. However, what had also been happening in the previous two centuries of feuding feudalism and the church really starting to find its feet, was a spectacular shift in social ordering amongst the common people. So spectacular, in fact, that it would have a much greater overall impact on the history of the Netherlands than the stories from amidst that ruling nobility about which Dirk or Reginar came to be the count, duke, or bishop of this, that, or whatever place. And there is perhaps no greater documentation of this social shift than in the creation of something known as the Bayeux Tapestry. The Bayeux Tapestry which, for enthusiasts, I've got to point out is technically actually an embroidery, is a really long embroidery from the latter half of the 11th century. It provides a remarkable insight into everyday Northwestern European life from the time when it was produced. Its main content, sure, shows the story of William, Duke of Normandy, and his conflict with and defeat of Harold Godwinson, and the eventual crowning of William as the King of England. Sure, that's the main content. But this, fortunately, is the history of the Netherlands podcast, and not the history of the Normans, France, or England podcast. So we don't really care about the main content of the Bayou Tapestry. For us, it is some of the subsidiary content that is way more interesting. If you look at the Bayou Tapestry closely, around the edges there are extra little scenes. They include all kinds of fascinating things. If you were an ornithological historian, it would have to be one of your favourite things because there are a lot of different birds. Birds, it seems, and big cats. Like, there's even one that seems to show a peacock kissing a leopard, perhaps. Another depicts what would have to be a bunch of antelope apparently having a meeting Probably about being antelopes? Anyway, for sure, very well-respected historians have written all kinds of intensely analytical and way more accurate assessments about the Bayou scenes than that there is a meeting of antelopes. But the little section that we care about is not that weird. It shows an age-old scene. Beasts of burden dragging plows through a field accompanied by the peasant farmers who work the land. In regards to the history of the Netherlands, that is arguably the most important scene in the most famous medieval documentation of the time. That very scene, that scenario, being one of peasants and beasts of burden ploughing the land together, is one that defined the everyday life experiences of the majority of people. It was not a new scene when the Bayou Tapestry was created in the 1070s, as common people and animals had already been working land together for thousands of years. But what the Bayou Tapestry shows us is that by the 10 hundreds, the scene had undergone a dramatic transformation from those previous thousands of years. Prior to this time, the beasts of burden used by the people working the land had been oxen, and the ploughs had been light weight. But in this little subscene in the Bayeux Tapestry, one of the beasts is a horse, and one of the pieces of machinery being used is a heavy-wheeled plough. And those two things, the use of horses and the use of heavy ploughs, for the people of the lowlands, and indeed for European history in general, ...would end up being a revolutionary combination indeed. On the topic of revolutionary ideas... here's an ad break. Back soon. The common folk in the lowlands... ...very few of whom owned land would either be serfs attached by law to a particular estate or free folk who, nonetheless, had to enter into contracts of heavy obligation, farming land in order to have anywhere to live and grow food to feed themselves. A village was, therefore, basically a settlement of several huts, depending on the amount of families, still built out of wattle and daub or what other easy material was available. On either side of the huts, would be unfenced paddocks or fields which they then had to farm. Produce would be taken to a central farmhouse, called a curtis, from which the workers and land was managed by those higher up in the pecking order. In between these dotted habitations would be large manors, castles and estates controlled by a lower nobility on behalf of their upper noble liege lords within this hierarchical vassal system of medieval European feudalism. This lower nobility was referred to as the Banal Lordship. They were the local rulers to whom the everyday people answered, and they possessed what was called Bunum, which was basically the legal right to tell other people what to do, to summon people to court, and to hand out justice. During the 11th century, Bunum came to be understood as allowing for the unfettered local authority of these lords, in particular as regarded the use of local production facilities like mills and ovens or wine presses. So then, most of the lowlands at this stage exists as such, an early medieval feudal agro-society. Cities existed, of course. Cologne was the largest near the lowlands, with about 20,000 people leading up to the turn of the millennium. Some towns existed, but they depended largely on their locations on active trade routes. The great social shift that was happening came about mainly because of a change in farming, and specifically in how to plow. Plowing soil requires breaking it and turning it. Until now, the common plow... Used for millennia around the old Roman Empire had been the scratch plough, a fairly lightweight construction otherwise known as an ard. This had always been used successfully in the south of Europe with its much lighter, less dense soil. In the north, with its more clay-laden soils, ards would often break or be unsuitable for efficiently ploughing large areas of land. It simply took too long. The soil was, for sure, more fertile than in the south, but that fertility could not be fully exploited. To both Cut Soil and Turn It were two actions that an Ard could not complete at once. A plot of land would have to be gone over twice, once in one direction, and then again cutting across the original lines in a perpendicular fashion, creating a grid. Using just the Ard, the full agricultural potential of Northern Europe would never be realized. And then, at some point, perhaps as early as the late 700s, the ideas that were the genesis of the creation, adaptation and improvement of this technology arrived in Northern Europe and the Lowlands. Whether it happened at once, or in gradual stages over a long time, eventually the heavy-wheeled plough also called the karaka began to be used in this region how it arrived in the lowlands is totally uncertain indeed where the heavy plough came from at all is a matter of fierce historical debate there is a veritable rabbit hole of plough history to be plowed through if you are into that kind of thing it's hard and dirty work ha but some poor sod ha will be turning over the pages till it's done ha The heavy wheel plough has three important components, a coulter, which cuts the soil about 20 centimetres deep, followed by an asymmetrical ploughshare, and a mould board. These last two turn the dirt from the side, bringing deeper soil to the surface. This whole getup would be supported on wheels, instead of a runner, as the traditional Ard was, meaning it did not get stuck in the dense soil as easily. Most likely, these components were added to the old ARD bit by bit. The ARD was improved upon until you had something that was big, heavy, technological, and had to be pulled by more beasts. Oxen could do it, but you needed more than one. Most people did not own more than one Oxen, if any at all. So people had to work together, start making risky decisions, and embark upon collective and collaborative ventures. With this plough, more land could be done quicker, but one needed fewer people to work it. However, the oxen were still not truly going to cut it, especially given how bloody slowly ox liked to move. Although the plough could do the job quicker, the heaviness and the oxen's lack of a speedy disposition meant that still, not enough land was being tilled. What was needed were stronger, faster animals to pull the ploughs. And so people started to use horses more in this heavy clay sodden land of the north however horses hooves began to rot so somebody went and invented the first iron horseshoe so there you have it i mean it's a stretch but we are willing to call it modern horseshoes bet you didn't know they were dutch horses came in varieties in the middle ages according to their use War horses, riding horses, and pack horses all varied in weights and size and expected attributes. To pull a caracah, one needed fewer horses than oxen, and they could also cover double the amount of land in a day. The problem with horses is that they need more food than oxen. But this was then solved with other agricultural developments, which were the adoption of a three field system and the incorporation of legumes in grown crops. Whereas the South European method of farming had involved a two-crop rotation system, simply planting one field and leaving another fallow, and then swapping each year, the three-field system was a much better and more productive idea for the people in the North. The common working folk began ploughing three separate fields, instead of two, In the first field, they would grow cereal goods like wheats, grains, and oats. Meanwhile, the second field was left until autumn, when winter produce like rye could be planted, but also legumes, beans, peas, and lentils. The third would be left fallow, left to rot, and the domestic animals could graze on the chaff. Each year, the crop designation of each field would change, meaning each field produce crops for two out of the three years. This solved a major issue with growing cereal crops, which tend to take all of the nitrogen out of the soil, meaning lesser and weaker yields the following year. You see, legumes take nitrogen out of the air and turn it into ammonia or other nitrogenous compounds in the soil, meaning that when that field next takes its turn to grow wheat, nitrogen levels from the legumes are sufficient enough to be able to produce a bumper crop, weather permitting, of course. And bumper crops were indeed what began to eventuate. With big yields of oat and grain, there was now enough fodder to feed the horses, who could now almost fully replace oxygen in pulling the heavy plows over bigger distances, which could then be turned into tri-rotating crops, which could produce bigger yields and more food for the animals. Furthermore, This could all be done with less manpower. The increased output in production, however, did not automatically mean that the common class could just break away from their feudal obligations. Cereal crops are pretty useless unless you can mill them. You can't bake bread or brew beer without grinding up the ingredients. Remember earlier when we spoke about the banal lords who controlled the mills? the ovens, and the other production equipment? Well, the people could not just use any mill. They had to use the one owned by their banal lords. And they also needed to pay for the right to do so. What is more, even though water mills, the most common type at the time, and windmills made the process of crushing grain easier for the peasants, those peasants still had to carry their goods there first, walking sometimes many miles. They then had to wait for their turn to use it, which could sometimes take days. The obligatory use of the Banal Lord's Mills during the 10th and 11th centuries had several consequences. One is that the diet of people changed as they started to consume less gruel and more bread, but also... It opened the door for people to start specialising in the various industries that relied on mills and ovens. Bas van Barfel points out that it is from this era that we get the beginnings of professional millers, bakers, and brewers. Unfortunately for the everyday farmers, however, the advantages gained by milling were often lost to them, instead replaced by the debt that was accrued in the obligatory use of the mill. So even though the technological development of the heavy plow and the three-crop rotation system and the adoption of horses instead of oxen all increased the ability of commoners to produce raw goods, the exploitation of their need to turn those raw goods into usable and marketable products also increased their want to resist the obligation they had towards their lords. Sure, it might be more work to use a handmill in secret for days, but at least you would get to keep the result of all of your hard work. But still, until an alternative social and economic structure appeared, the main beneficiaries of agricultural production were always the banal lords. The reason why we've gone into some detail on this progression is because these issues and developments like increasing yield and generally how to improve life are major things that everyday people working the land would have been thinking about, talking about and worrying about. Imagine you are one of these commoners. A merchant comes into your village one day in the evening time when the 15 or so families that make up your village are getting ready for supper and the night that will follow. Hearths are being stoked, food is being chopped, and animals being fed. Everybody is back from work in the fields where you have been struggling as usual with the less sophisticated ards that you use. When the merchant shows you all the heavy-wheeled plough in his wagon and tells you the price, it sets off much interest, questions, and discussion. You have heard of them before, but you've never seen one. It is expensive, you would all have to chip in. How much land can it cover? Can you show us how many oxen are needed? Between you all, there are only eight in the whole village. The merchant tells you that eight oxen will suffice to pull one plow, but what you could do instead is sell them and purchase horses. More expensive, but quicker and stronger. Four horses to each character would be able to plow twice as much land as the eight oxen, Plus fewer people would be needed to work it. It is really interesting to think of how many of these scenarios, discussions and means came across the people in Europe as they adopted the heavy wheeled plow or perhaps just adopted and added the different components to their existing machinery or their ideas over time. What was the reaction to the first person who suggested what became the three crop rotations? Or who walked away from an anvil holding a horseshoe? And what did the horse think when he tried to put it on? Did he object? Did he say, nay? We will never be privy to those discussions, or situations, or equine thoughts. But if you are looking for the fundamental events and circumstances that conspire to construct our history, it is not just in the political and royal courts of a noble elite that we should focus The excess of manpower and also surplus of goods that came about from all of this technological development left a whole lot of people with not much to do and little chance to make a living. Those people had to go somewhere and they had to do something. And it is in the next episode that we are going to look at how this all led to the phenomenon of urbanization in the lowlands. This has been a fairly specific episode on what nonetheless is a pretty vague period of progression. We know it may not have been as exciting as all the warmongering, backstabbing, title-grabbing antics of that ruling nobility, but mostly we just want to make the point that just as significant to our history as any treaty, battle, or coronation are the actions taken, the decisions made, solutions arrived upon, and ideas had by the common folk to just try to make their lives easier and better. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.